Hello and welcome to the Boss Podcast. I'm Kirk Bailey and this is episode 22 featuring Jeffrey Moore and his Boss USA talk, Crossing the Chasm, which looks at the challenges startup companies face moving from early adopting to mainstream customers. Welcome to the Business of Software podcast, where we share talks from our conferences and discussions with software people that will make you think. You can find out more at businessofsoftware.org. Jeffrey Moore is an author, speaker and advisor who splits his consulting time between startup companies in the Wildcat Venture Partners portfolios and established high-tech enterprises, most recently including Salesforce, Microsoft, Autodesk, F5 Networks, Gainsight, Google and Splunk. Moore has a Bachelor's in American Literature from Stanford University and a PhD in English Literature from the University of Washington. After teaching English for four years at Olivet College, he returned to the Bay Area with his wife and family and began a career in high tech as a training specialist. Over time, he transitioned first into sales and then into marketing, finally finding his niche in marketing consulting, working first at Regis McKenna, then with three firms he helped found, the Chasm Group, Chasm Institute and TCG Advisors. Happy listening. Okay, so there's two pieces I want to talk to you about. And I'm going to pepper this thing with kind of what's, what I think is going on in the industry right now as we go along. But the first thing is, as a small company, you depend on innovation. And our models of innovation, our conceptual models, particularly for managing innovation, aren't very good. We're pretty good as a society, particularly US society, about the process of innovation, the inspiration of the innovation, how do you recognize exciting, innovative things. We're not very good at the economics of innovation. So I want to just give, I want to present a, series, a set of frameworks we've been using for the last four or five years that have been particularly helpful to managers who are making tough resource allocation decisions against an innovation agenda. And in particular, I want to talk about this issue of one of the functions of innovation is to achieve competitive separation. That's always important, but in a downturn, it is a matter of life and death. So I, I, I really want to set that bit pretty hard. So let me start with this understanding innovation thing. You know. When we talk about innovation, there's always someone who says, you know, you cannot dictate innovation. It cannot be driven from the top down. It has to bubble up from the bottom. And that is true. But the problem is, if that is all you do, if all you do is just say, let 100 flowers bloom, you create what we call the vector math problem, which is you innovate like crazy, but it doesn't add up to much. Because everybody's got a different vector of innovation. They're going in different directions. You do not get competitive separation, because the sum total is not very hard to match. Differentiation is not sustainable. And you get this lots of activity, not much to show for it. So you cannot just say, I'll set a culture of innovation. We'll be fine. You've got to get those vectors aligned against a major vector that can create real separation. And so. When I, we talk about innovation, there are th one of three goals you should have, and I, I believe these are mutually exclusive. So I think any in innovation project you do should have one of these three goals, and I'm going to kind of walk you through how each one works. I think they're all valid, but you should not try to combine any two of them. So differentiation is the first one, and it's the most important one in a downturn. It just says, look, you're a member of a competitive set. As long as you're a member of that set, you're duking it out for every single sale you get. What you want to do is get yourself outside the set. You want to get outside the set by amplifying a specific vector of innovation. That's why those vectors have to line up into something that would get you out of the circle. What that means is that com those competitors either cannot 
or will not copy what you just did. So when you do that, you get unbelievable bargaining power, assuming you've done it for something that customers want. Right? But when, you, when customers want it and you're the only one who has it, that's a very, very good situation to be in. And realistically, every company in this room should be able to achieve that for some target market. Right? Because focus works. Because if you focus enough and intensely enough, you will do things that your competitor either cannot or will not do. And in large markets, it happens occasionally, and it's spectacular. So nobody could match Google. Google kind of owns search. Nobody could match Apple. Now we'll see if Google can match Apple with this broid thing that's coming out this week. But, 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 but so far, nobody's come close, right? So enormous bargaining power. What happens if you don't get this? Well, the interesting thing, it's not innovate or die. It's innovate or starve, right? It's innovate or just get in line and kind of, you know, discount your way to some sort of deal for some amount of money because we're hungry, right? So the importance of, getting, of focusing on differentiation is really high. And we call that vector of differentiation core. And we have a very specific definition here. So core are the processes or the projects or the features or the services or whatever it is you do that enable and amplify your chosen vector of competitive differentiation, the thing that makes you separate from the others. And that in itself is kind of an interesting word, but what's really interesting is that means anything that is not core is context. And what you discover as you're running a business over time is most of what you do is context, not core. And the most frustrating thing in your life is that the context gets in the way of the core that you, your context duties get more and more and more and more and more, and, but they're mission critical and they're urgent, so you can't like blow them off, so you do them, but then you think, God, I'm not getting to the core. The whole point of the, the thing is so much fun about having a company of one or two, is you actually spend quite a lot of time on core. But as you start having success, ironically, more and more of the business becomes things that are not the differentiating part of the business, they become context, they need attention, and if you don't establish a really strong core context discipline, if you don't get up in the morning and say core before context, you will come to the end of the day and find out that your email, uh, your email trail beat you to death. Right? That once again, you got trapped in the context monster and you didn't get any core done today at all. Okay? The same thing with budgeting. When people budget year after year, they tend to budget for context before core particularly in large companies. One of the nice things about being in a small company is you can override that just intuitively. The larger the company, the harder it is to do. But this core context discussion is worth having with your colleagues. What really is core? Not what's mission critical. What's core? What really makes us different? That's the key question. That's core. Now, that's differentiation. Core differentiation, boom, okay. Two other reasons for, to innovate. Second one is called neutralization. What happens with neutralization is the market moves, but you didn't, right? Oops, right? And all of a sudden now, your offer is not meeting some minimum specification that the market is expecting from you. So you've got to get back inside the yellow circle. But this is context, not core. This, you're not being different here. You're trying to be the same, right? You're now every cell phone in the world trying to be able to do this you know, and have something happen other than just beep, you know, uh, going forward, right? Now, can they have an app store? Probably not, but will they have something that looks like an app store? Sure, will it be as good? No. Will it be good enough? That's the question. This is all about being good enough, not being better than, better than good. 
You're regaining market viability to get back into the competitive set. You have dropped out, you need to get back in. Okay? Rejoining is mission critical, as failure means exclusion from future purchase decisions. Right now, the big guys in enterprise software are struggling like mad to get software as a service as a viable distribution mechanism. They've all declared they had it. Oracle always declares it's had it for at least a decade. It, it just sucks, right? I mean, it just, I mean, software, salesforce.com really set them back in their ear. NetSuite's, you know, in, in, in that same genre. So, so again, the game here is you're not going to outperform the person who moved the yellow circle. You just need to get back in, okay? So the point about this exercise is, you know, differentiation is how you make money, and neutralization is how you stay in the game. And there is a world of difference between the two. And the amount of resource that it is worth putting into the two because of the way you get paid back. I would submit to you fundamentally, you cannot put too much money into differentiation. I think, I mean, I guess at some point you could, but, but I, I rarely see that as a problem among clients. I much more often see that they don't put quite enough in, so they almost get outside the yellow circle, and then they kind of fall back inside, right? But I see a lot of times when they put too much money into neutralization, because once you're good enough, that's good enough. Right? Between good enough and beyond good, there is a massive amount of, of investment you can make, and you will not get paid for it. So the amount that it takes to get back in, you'll get paid for that. The amount that it takes you to get outside, you'll get paid for that. But between good enough and almost outside the circle, you can spend a fortune and not get paid because you're still in the competitive set. The customer says, I love what you did. By the way, this other guy did some things that are not exactly the same, but they're sort of the same. So whoever one of you guys gives me the best price, you get my, you get my business, okay? In fact, the, the worst thing you can do is to take your innovation budget and get just to the edge of the yellow circle. That zone is normally defined as best in class. And best in class is a sucker's bet, right? Because everybody applauds you, but nobody pays you. So it's really important to have a very strict sense of, am I neutralizing or am I differentiating and not get caught out in between? The third place you have to innovate has to do with this thing about dealing with Darwin. Free, uh, free market economies are competitive. Free market economies create price deflation as competitors can enter and copy your stuff. And so all of a sudden, you're sitting outside the yellow circle, not from the point of view of a feature point of view, but from a cost point of view. Your cost envelope is wrong. Okay? Now, the good news is that the cost of goods of software has not changed in my lifetime. It is zero. It has remained zero. God bless it. Okay? Well, you've got to license a few things, but at the margin, zero. Right? But you, your cost of marketing, your cost of support are not zero. Right? So getting back inside of the thing, productivity gains are critical to keep pace with the market. You must be able to do that. That is also context. Okay? Failure to do that means you, you actually keep your top line, whatever it was, but you don't have any, you, the, the, the story at the bottom line is really, really grim, okay? You stop paying yourself a full salary. Not a, not a pretty picture, right? So you must, opt, and this takes innovation. We don't think normally of optimization as innovation. Baloney, baloney. Optimization requires you to think differently and act differently in, 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 in interesting ways. And as a small company, in even more interesting ways. Because at least large companies have a bunch of optimization levers they can pull without a lot of innovation, but small companies don't, right? 
So it, it takes real innovation. So when you look at this return on innovation, I just, I just want you to think. I want you to actually use this diagram as a, have a dialogue with your colleagues. Differentiation. That's the number one goal. If we're not doing that, but if we don't get outside the yellow circle, it doesn't work, okay? That's core. So having this discussion about what really is core at our company, you'll be surprised that you, I would be shocked if you guys were really aligned on that without having a series of very deep discussions about it. Everybody in their heart has a dream, but part of the way we get along with each other is we don't completely share our dreams with each other. Uh, partially just to protect weak egos, but partially because we don't necessarily think we're gonna agree and I wanna keep my dream, right? So if you're gonna run a company that is going to set itself apart from the herd, it's really, really important that you align with your colleagues around what does that look like? What, what, what does that look like? Neutralization, okay? We gotta get back in. And, and the, 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 but this is context. So the danger here is engineers who work for you are red, blue, colorblind. Once you give them an assignment, they cannot tell the difference between red and blue in this chart. They are gonna beat, they're gonna do the best feature that's ever been done because I'm an engineer, what's your question, right? And, and so it's economically not the right idea. So you have to frame, the good thing, the thing that's fun about working with engineers is they intuitively understand systems thinking. And by the way, most other people don't, okay? So what's really fun about it is you must frame the system with a model that says, oh, I see, the purpose of a neutralization innovation is to get the maximum input for the minimum input, output from the minimum input and be good enough. And good enough, is, it turns out to be a somewhat intriguing concept to try to measure and to try to get a sense of. And, and, and going to, you know, it's a little bit like those games where it's like a shuffleboard game where you want to get to the 10, but if you go too far, you're back in the zero. So it's a, it's a tough game to play. If you frame it that way, instead of framing it at, you're, you're smarter than, you know, 450 engineers at Microsoft, what's your question? Um, you know, if you say, no, that's not the object to beat 450 engineers at Microsoft, it's to make their work essentially not that important. Okay? That's the goal. And then there's this optimization goal, which is also context. And optimization in a small company requires, in a large company, optimization is all about stupid stuff, right? Stupid stuff builds up over time in a large company, and the larger it is, the more it gets locked into process and procedures and how we do things around here, and there's just a good boatloads of stupid stuff in large companies, which is largely why you're not in one, why you're in this room. Because for all the things that are very, very difficult to do in your company, there's probably less stupid stuff in your company than in any Fortune 500, well, I know there's, uh, than in any Fortune 500 company, but and you're happier because of that. Even though you're scared to death, periodically, you're happier than you would be in a big, dumb company, you know, somewhere in the belly of a whale, wandering around, trying to be some digestive enzyme for, on purpose of some large thing, right? <laughs> Whatever. So when you optimize in your world, you've got to optimize around this notion of what parts of the value chain can I transfer from my organization to another organization, maybe the customer's organization, um, 
maybe a partner organization? Uh, can I use Amazon EC2 type stuff? Um, is, there, is there some sort of, can I use uh, genius.com or these, sa these sales 2.0 things? Can I, have, can, I have, can I use social networking for customer support so I can have fewer customer support people? Because it turns out actually customers are better at supporting other customers than you are for many things, for the dumb stuff. For the smart stuff, it's got to be you. But for the dumb stuff, it doesn't. In fact, you're actually bad at the dumb stuff because you give it to dumb people, right? And customers are actually smarter than whoever you give the dumb stuff to. So social CRM is like, that, that's, that's the kind of, so you gotta be, you gotta be really creative about how you optimize uh, in, in your company. And again, the point is, if you're not doing those three things, why are we doing it, right? So there's two other things that can happen when you innovate. One is, it can just fail. And in fact, if you don't ever fail, you're probably not innovating enough. That's easy to, enough to understand. If you fail frequently, God might be trying to give you a message that you, you might be better off in another career, you know, something like that. Uh, the world does that to you periodically. Um, but failed attempts are kind of part of the deal. What should drive you nuts, particularly in a down economy, particularly in a small company, is waste. And waste has a lot of sources around innovation, but here are the three that I think are the most pernicious, and I've already mentioned all three. One, differentiation projects that don't go far enough. Just shoot me, right? Just consider, for example, the American automobile industry for, say, the last 40 years, right? When did they go far enough? You know, maybe five times, right? Maybe, maybe five. But for 800 cars, or 10,000, or however many different cars they made, who cared? Can you really call to mind a picture of a Buick? Right? Or a Pontiac? Or an Oldsmobile? No, you can't. It's impossible. Even the designers can't remember it, right? <laughs> Differentiation projects that don't go far enough. Why did they not go far enough? Because somebody thought it was too risky. Because at some point, we went, oh, she, you know, maybe we should just pull our horns in a little bit. You know, a fin as tall as two people, maybe it's a little too tall. You know, bring it up. You know. I mean, I'll tell you, give you an example that's really painful. This is painful to the folks at Motorola. Two years before Apple announces the, the uh, iPhone, Motorola knows it's happening. Worse, Motorola has all of the technology to build an iPhone in-house at the time. Now, the software is a little creaky or whatever. But they had all the haptic stuff. They could have done all that stuff. Couldn't do it. Could not get it done. It would be going too far. It would be going too far. Okay? And so this, it, one of the wonderful things about being in a small company is, you know who's the, the arbiter of too far? You. That would be you. Okay? And so maybe you have to influence a couple more people, but not 20, not 50, not a board of directors, not a supply chain, you know? Not, not carriers like AT&T and Verizon, you know? Just you and the customer. So, and the thing that's miraculous about Apple, and the reason why Apple gets these, makes these things happen, this has not, never been Apple's problem, is because at the, at the margin, Steve makes the call. And, he, and, and Steve is very good at going far enough. Okay? Leaving out something you can't possibly leave out, a DV drive or you know, whatever, the, whatever the latest thing is that you think ought to be in there that they didn't put in there. Second one is neutralization projects that go too far. That's actually a management problem, and that's your problem, and, and it's your fault, because you didn't frame the problem correctly. You framed it as, you know, these guys have gotten ahead of us, we've got to catch up. No, you don't. 
These guys have gotten ahead of us. We have to get good enough. That is not the same thing as catch up, and it certainly doesn't imply we want to get ahead. We do not want to get ahead of them. If we got ahead of them, that meant we spent more resources than we needed to. I'd rather spend that resource on core, not on bragging rights over context. Right? So really important to get that right. And then the third thing, unaligned innovation. We are so innovative around here. Everybody's doing something really innovative. It's really cool, but none of it, none of it lines up and amplifies. Innovation to be powerful has to get amplified, which means you've got to do other things as you, as you, as you go along to, to make it even harder and harder to copy. The goal is to do things that your competitors either cannot or will not do. You have to get pretty far outside the yellow circle for that to happen. That's this competitive separation goal, okay? That's, this is what, to me, the other stuff is really important, but if this, this issue of getting competitive separation, um, that just has got to obsess you day and night, kind of forever, sorry, but that's kind of where it's at, okay? Because when you get it, then people envy it and they come after you. So Google has phenomenal competitive separation with search advertising, right? 80, 70, 80% market share, it's game over, right? Game over the way, say, IBM controls the computer industry end to end. Oh, well, I, I guess that game actually is over, right? You know, game over the way Sun is the dot and dot com. Oops, well, I guess Sun isn't around either. Okay. Yeah, there's never a game over, ever a game over, right? And in fact, the games last much less long than you would wish. So it's not just achieving competitive separation once, it's then doing the consistent investment that keeps you ahead of the game, ahead of the game. In the next generation of competition with the iPhone, it's not going to be the device that keeps Apple outside the yellow circle. It's going to be the App Store, right? And it'll be the relationships going forward. But then those will get copied, and you'll have to go to the next place and the next place. Dell stayed ahead of the PC industry for 10 years on process innovation. But now he got caught, right? So, 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 so don't, don't underestimate what this is required. So when you think about this challenge of differentiation, it plays out differently depending on where you are in the life cycle of the software that you're, you're building. And uh, Joel was suggesting that I not like talk about all my books, but the good news is they're all on one slide, right? So all five right here, we're fine. So, so one slide, we're done, okay? It's very cheap, right? Okay, so what this model says is that the left-hand side, there's something called the technology adoption life cycle. That was book one and book two, right? So in, in book one, we talked about, and, and Joel referred to them, the early market. And that's when the early adopters come in, and they're people like you, and they, they understand you, and they're technically interested in products, and they're interested in experimenting and finding out what's possible. It's very exciting. They don't make much of a sustainable market. And then there's this thing we call the chasm, that space, which separates it from the mainstream market, which is the rest of that gray stuff. And early on, on the other side of that chasm was an area of niche markets we called the bowling alley, where you could win a, 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 a market uh, dominance in a niche and become a viable company, become one that customers wanted to see in business next year and the year after and the year after. When you win a niche market, you become very, very persistent as a company. I mean, even companies that, that don't get beyond the first niche are in existence 10, 15, 20 years later because that one niche, by the way, if you think about advertising graphic artists, that's what kept Apple around at a time when, frankly, it had 3% market share. It was an impossible position for it to be in. 
but it kept them in the game long enough that they could reinvent the game around a consumer business. So that bowling alley part is extremely important. We're going to come back to it later, later in a minute. Then there's this thing we call the tornado. And that's when all of a sudden the market does go horizontal and everybody wants in. Everybody needs a 3G phone. Everybody needs to Twitter or to be on Facebook or to you know, have you know, websites or to have social networking, CRM, or whatever the heck it is, right? And all of a sudden we're all in. And it's a great time to be in that category at that time because everybody in the category gets a big pop in their business. Very exciting. In venture capital, if you think about it, if you ever how many people here have ever taken money from a venture capitalist? Okay, you look like sound people. You're right. There's only about five of you. Good, good. Okay. All right, good. The point about when you take money from a venture capitalist, they bought an option on a future tornado. That's why they gave you the money. Okay. The only way you make money in venture capital is if the companies you invest in go into the tornado, and the only way you make a gazillion dollars is if, they, if you pick the winner in the tornado market. So, and it's a little bit of a crap, well, it's not a little bit of a crapshoot, it's a whole lot of a crapshoot, but that's why they call it venture capital. Tornadoes. And then the market goes on to Main Street. And when it goes on to Main Street, it just means people are now buying their second or their third or their fourth, and they're no longer going to say, hey, you know, I have a phone. It doesn't even have a wire. It's like, yeah, Jeff, I got it. Right, fine. You know? Okay. <laughs> but the market is still growing. Okay? So this is a very cool time. If you ever do decide to leave your company and join a large company, be sure to join it as a manager when they're in the B phase. Because you can then say things like, yeah, I take uh, Oracle from, uh, you know, 100 million to a billion. Yeah, that's on my watch. Well, fine. If you stood there, it was going to go from 100 million to a billion, right? <laughs> okay. So, so growth point. On the other hand, by the way, if you do, be careful of this phase. This has actually been the big challenge of this decade for enterprise software and systems. We have become a mature industry. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have new stuff at the front, as I'm going to talk about in a minute. But if you look at the center of gravity of our industry, it has moved from the front half of this curve to the middle. There's a couple of trillion dollars of sunk costs here, and the world's kind of saying, I'm sorry, I'm not going like, to just replace it because of the next Intel chip or the next Microsoft operating system, which we did do for quite a while, for most of the 90s. We essentially swapped out our infrastructure over and over. There was, well, in the 60s and 70s, there were mainframes. The 80s, many computers and workstations. Then we went to PCs and client server. Then we went to internet enable. Then we had the dot-com boom, bust. And when we came out of that, it was like, stop. Just stop. Okay? We're not doing this again. So all of a sudden, now we're playing in a very different world, which looks a lot more like an industrial world than a Moore's Law-driven, uh, magical, you know, flying kites uh, world. We're going to talk about that in a minute. And then there's decline. And, and, and you know, our friends at Sun got acquired from Oracle because they were in a declining market. Our friends at Kodak discovered the fault line, right? A Kodak moment, right? Ah! You know? <laughs> My entire life, I made money from film. Our friends at AT&T, long distance. Long distance. That's time and distance on the internet. Except the internet is not sensitive to either time or distance. Oops. Billing model looks a little off. Skype, ah, you know? So, so the point is, fault lines, complete total obsolescence, big deal. So what's important about this model is to ask yourself, where are we as a category, not as a company, not our offer, because you may be late or early. Where is the category in this life cycle? Because the category rewards different kinds of performances at different points. And the easiest way to get this, I think, is to think about 
the three kind of classic reasons people choose one product over another. And they are because it's got better price performance, better features, it's cooler, it's, I like it better. Because the person or the company who's selling it to me is one I prefer to other people or other companies. If it's a company to the company, it's usually called a brand preference. If it's a person to person, it's usually a relationship preference. Most of you have relationship power with a, a, a set of customers that you know. Or I'm a value buyer. I don't really care about the offer that much. I just want to get, you know, I want to get the most value, which is often the lowest cost. Business of Software are proud to offer online deep dive masterclasses led by industry leaders on topics you have told us you are interested in. There is a great lineup of subject focused masterclasses split over two sessions to help you do what you want to do better, better. The next class features Steve Portugal as he looks at what to do after you have conducted interviews and have loads of great data. Visit businessofsoftware.org slash masterclasses for more information. Business of Software online masterclasses. Learn from an expert, become an expert. Only at businessofsoftware.org slash masterclasses. Well, if you look at those buyers over the life of a, um, this category maturity life cycle, at the beginning, it's really dominated by performance buyers. Um, the, 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 the offer has not yet gotten to scale, frankly, to be very attractive to a value buyer. It's, it's liable to require actually a lot of investment to make it work. That's not what value buyers like. They want it just to work, right? Like a refrigerator, you open it up, you get a beer, what's your question, right? It's a great product, right? This is, that's, not, that's not here. There's also a relationship buyer, and often those relationships are, are with people who They've known from other, uh, other uh, technical experiences. They like to buy from you. They trust you. You're their trusted advisor. So you can, you can get uh, relationship matters. But performance is really the key thing at the beginning. You get into this wonderful growth thing where things grow. It's still, performance is still your best play. But now it's probably more price performance than just pure performance, right? It, it, it's, it's, you know, I'm just, I'm getting better and better and better deals. This is, this is really cool. The, my flat panel screen is getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and the price is getting lower and lower and lower. And I wanna, and I'm, but I want to buy the best one. That's, that's what the blue guys are saying. The red ones are saying, no, I want to get a Sony. I don't, I don't know whether the Sony's the best one or not, but I trust Sony or Panasonic or whomever it is that they're doing. Or I want to buy it from Harry at Good Guys, because Harry at Good Guys or Fry's or whoever has always sold me this stuff. And, and I trust Harry. If Harry points me to something else, I'll get whatever Harry tells me to get. And now for the first time, the value guys are coming in because there is this business of we're hitting new price points. We're hitting, you know, we got it under $1,000, we got it under $800, whatever. Wherever the value person's click in comes in, they're coming into the market. You get to the middle of the market, and now value buying is the play. Value buying is the play. So if you're going to play in a middle market thing, and you're not playing a value game, you have to be very, very careful to pick your spots because the market as a whole is going to a position of good enough is good enough. And so don't keep on asking me for more money. The, the whole maintenance discussion between companies and enterprise software uh, licensing is all about, you know, guys, this 18%, 20% maintenance thing you're charging me, I don't, I don't get it. I, I, frankly, I don't think I'm getting that kind of value. I don't want to pay it anymore, okay? particularly in a recession. So and all of a sudden, the business model, your business model, if you're not careful, whatever your business model is, can get set back 
in, the, in a mature market. So one of the things you have to be thinking about is do I need to do some business model innovation in, 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 in what we're playing? Look at what's happening to Microsoft or Autodesk or uh, you know, any, of the, any of the big uh, PC, you know, Intuit, all these guys. They've got to find a way to revise their business model to make it more online oriented. Because people don't want to just keep on, you know, selling these things over and over again and saying I'm going to, you know, bring in yet another license. And by the way, if I lay off the person, I still have to pay you for the license. Blah blah blah. Okay. Performance is now much less. Relationship actually is bigger, because in a mature market, the other thing people do if they pay a premium is I just want you to make this go away, right? Just whatever you tell me to do, you know, don't don't gouge me, but I'll pay you some premium because. I don't want to think, this is context for me, not core. It's your core, it's my context, take care of it. I trust you, please, let's go. And then as you get further and further back, that becomes harder and harder to sustain, because frankly, it's like, well, I'm sorry, you know, it, it's just a light bulb. I mean, I know you give me great service, but really, it's just a light bulb, right? So we, we can change it ourselves if we have to. So the question here is, what game are you playing? And when you look at that from the point of view of work that was done in the early 90s by some guys named Mike Tresima, uh, Tresi and Fred Wersima around a book called The Value Disciplines of Market Leaders, what they said was companies who get outside the yellow circle usually get outside in one of these three areas. And they map to the three areas we just looked at. Right? So product leadership, if you think of yourself as a product leadership company, you're going after performance buyers. You better ask yourself, how many performance buyers are there in my market? If you think of yourself as a customer intimacy play, then okay, I'm, a, I'm going after relationship buyers. How many relationship buyers are there in my market? Where are we in the life cycle? Right? And then if I'm a, a value player, same deal. Right? Value players should not play early in the life cycle, and performance players should not play late in the life cycle. Right? Right? Relationship plays you can play all along, but you've always got to be very careful with the relationship play, because at the margin, you're just one, one relationship change away from being compared to a value guy. Right? If your customer that like trusts you leaves and a new person comes in, it's very, very difficult. Okay? Okay. So with this in mind, which zone is our sweet spot? And this was our approach to innovation coming into this decade. We were working with this. And what we realized was, particularly with larger companies, but I think it's, it's even maybe more true with smaller companies, not a bad idea, but not granular enough. And so this book, Dealing with Darwin, was about can't we make this system more granular so that we can get more precise about that vector that's going to take us outside the yellow circle? Okay. So product leadership zone ended up saying, well, I'm kind of going north-ish, right? But am I going to go north, northeast, north, northwest? What am I doing? Where am I going? And so we, we did a kind of a survey of companies that we thought had been very successful at one point or another in their history getting outside the yellow circle in a sustainable way. Not forever, because nobody stays outside forever, but for, for a good long run. Here are some examples. You know, our friends at Google really have totally disrupted the advertising industry in the digital media world. And as a result, they've got a whole new category, and they jumped on top of it, and they're, and they're riding that sucker, and it's created enormous, enormous wealth. Solution innovation. That's where you pick a particular vertical or a particular class of consumer or whomever you're going after, and you double down and double down and double down until people go, I'm just, I'm tired of fighting these guys. They invest everything they can, in this case, in architects, engineers, and construction people. I'm tired. 
give them all the contractors, I'm going someplace else, okay? That's called solution innovation. Product innovation, we just do it better, it's more fun, it's more, it's just, it's cooler, it's faster, you know, whatever, product innovation, okay? Platform innovation, we can take a whole lot of legacy stuff, technology, and we can put one layer over the whole thing, and then the next generation of innovation can be built on top of us, and we will take just a boatload of context out of the system. Oracle did it with relational databases. Microsoft did it with, with, with the client and client server. This is what allowed those two platforms is what allowed client server architecture to proliferate. Then the TCIP platform and that whole stack for the internet, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Performance, product leadership, performance. These are good for growth markets. They're not good for mature markets. Okay. Performance, because there's not enough performance buyers in mature markets. Customer intimacy. Line extension simply is, is the beginning of saying, I'm going to make a standard product fit for a particular class of application, and I'm going to do it in a kind of a mass customized way, but I can begin to reach out to, to people. I mean, it's easier to see this, frankly, in consumer. I've tried to make sure all the examples here were from business to business, but consumer, if you think like Barbie or, you know, American Girl. Anybody here have a daughter that buys American Girl dolls? Anybody even know you guys? Okay, two, three, four. All right, this is not an American Girl crowd. I, I have to confess, but it's this is this is a doll where you they read the book, they get the doll, they buy the house, they have to get the furniture, they get. You can spend about a thousand dollars per American Girl. You can actually mortgage your house in order to keep your daughter in American Girl. It was a line extension play, and it keeps working. Line extensions work when you have a great brand. So HP and printing, they you know they had the you know they had the laser, and then they had the, they had the, um, the inkjet printer, and then they had the portable printer, and then they had the fax in the printer, and then the copier, and the, you know, the all-in-one, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Design innovation, very cool stuff. You're going to hear from Don Norman uh, later today. Probably he's talking, the thing with Don is he can talk about so many things. I don't even know if he's going to talk about design, but he wrote a wonderful book called The Design of Everyday Things, and this whole issue about design innovation can fundamentally set an otherwise commoditized offer completely apart from. Uh, from the rest, very exciting. Marketing innovation, you know, we think about more the glitzy consumer marketing, but IBM, you know, IBM's competitors always like to say it stands for inferior but marketable. And, and the point about that was is the envy in that phrase was marketable because IBM would lock up relationships with, with, with these huge enterprises through a series of, of marketing activities that were, that were just kind of semi-exclusive and everybody else was kind of on the outside looking in. V sustained it through very, very, very tough time uh, in, in the 90s and, it, and continues to sustain it. Uh, experiential innovation, just creating an experience like, wow, I never knew that my sixth grade buddy you know, is now a hang glider in Santa Cruz or whatever. You know, I mean, Facebook has kind of changed the experience. I always thought I wanted to get my email in from an email product, you know? I mean, I, I always thought that if I got email, I'd want to answer it. The answer to those are no. No, I don't, no. I'm just kind of curious to see what they're doing. I'm not going to call that person. I, in fact, if I got back in touch with that person, I would just shrivel, shrink. <laughs> but kind of funny to see what he's doing, okay? Value engineering, TSMC, that's the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation, fundamentally changed the uh, semiconductor industry. Integration innovation. Now, these ones are all, these are great for value. So the first one is just take value uh, costs out of the immediate system. Integration innovation is kind of a platform play. 
I will pull everything together so I'll take total cost of ownership way down. Process innovation is I'm going to work across the value chain. And business model is, I, you know, we're actually, we're actually spending the money in the wrong place or in the wrong way. So you have Mark Benioff with no software, which might make some here, of you here a little nervous. But in fact, he's not attacking you. And he's, you're probably more of an ally to him than, a, than, than a, a competitor. But the point about this exercise is lots of, lots of circles. Right? Lots of circles. So the first thing that you say is, well, OK, I can't really say I don't have very many choices to get outside the yellow circle. You do have a lot of choices. The question would be, which one would you bet on? And the interesting thing about this particular conference is, for 90% of you, there is one and only one of these 12 circles that makes sense. I don't know, who, I don't know about the other 10%. Okay? For 90% of you, I, I, my claim is that's the only circle that makes sense. Because what it allows you to do is to target a set of customers that is as big as you can handle and who have a problem which is as unique as you need it to be so that you can be their one and only. Right? That, that's the game. And, and that's the game. This form of innovation takes companies from 0 million to 10 million, from 10 million with, multi, with, with two or three uh, um, uh, target markets to 100 million. You can, you can actually get it with some horizontalization to about 300 million. After about 300 million, it's hard. It's very hard. So you probably at that point have to figure out. So is anybody like in danger of like having a $300 million year this, this, like, this year? Are we, are, we, are we OK? OK, OK. So I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to then stay with solution in, in, in my company, same thing, by the way. I don't know what you know, customers are being pikers. I don't know what it is. Right? There's six of us, 300 million. That'd be, uh, what, 50 million a person? Be good, be good. OK, so what are we, so this solution innovation, so what, what's this about? Well, the first thing solution innovation is about is picking, this is, solution innovation is all about being a big fish in a small pond. So we, this issue of fish to pond ratio is something you want to think about very, very carefully. Because you do not want to be a minnow in an ocean. That is, that's a, your hors d'oeuvre, right? You, you, you want to be the biggest thing in your pond. So how do you do that? And we have these three criteria here called big enough to matter, small enough to lead, and a good fit with our crown jewels. Okay? And you can kind of see, see the details under that. This is a great exercise to take you and your stakeholders through. Because, because what you want to be, because what happens whenever anybody picks a target market, somebody else says, oh, no, oh, you know, I had this other market in mind, or oh, gosh, that's pretty small, or we're putting all our eggs in one basket, or I don't know, or, you know, are you sure? Have you done enough research? How many people do we know? I mean, there's a gazillion reasons not to commit, right? But, but the issue is not committing is more dangerous than committing. So even picking the wrong target market is safer than picking no target market. Or spreading your bets across two or more markets at a time where you don't have enough resource to become number one if, if you, in any of them, because you've, you've, now, you've now spread your bets too thin. So the game you want to play is I'm going to pick one place where I am going to be. It's the no excuses. We are going to dominate there. and then. Everything else is context from the point of view of a market. This is core. Everything else is context. By the way, you will discover half your revenue doesn't come from your core market. That's OK. It's all right. It's called a purchase order. God bless people, right? It's a good thing. But, but in terms of building power, building reference base, becoming the, the go-to 
the go-to company in that niche, a sale inside your target market is worth much more to your company than the exact same number of dollars purchased outside your target market because it amplifies your vector of innovation, it reinforces your power base in your target market. So that's what this stuff is about here. So I would encourage you to, to use this as a tool as you're kind of engaging with, with your, with your uh, folks. And then this is the thumbnail that you have to fill out with your colleagues to specify what exactly is our solution, innovation, target, market, strategy, and it goes like this. We're going, and we're in the bowling alley for that. Remember that model where we had the bowling alley thing? We're a niche market. We're not after enthusiasts and visionaries. We want people who are pragmatists. The reason why? Pragmatists, at the end of the day, choose the product that their other pragmatists chose. They actually don't like to evaluate it themselves because they think they're going to make a mistake. So they kind of wait, and they say, well, what did you get? Well, what did you get? What did you get? You know, oh, okay, so you got an iPhone, an iPhone, an iPhone, an iPhone. Oh, guess it must be an iPhone, right? Okay, good. I'll get an iPhone too, right? Oh, you didn't? No, 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 you got, you got a droid, droid, droid. Oh, shit, it's a droid. Or iPhone droid, iPhone droid, iPhone droid. I'm going to wait, okay? Pragmatists do what other pragmatists do, which is why you, if you stay in the niche and you get enough pragmatists in the niche, all the other pragmatists will do what you want. That's the kind of customer you're going after. So they're pragmatic. They listen to their friends. They don't get all excited about your features. What do they talk about? They talk about the compelling reason to buy anything. Pragmatic people are not like thinking, gosh, I wonder if I could get up this morning and buy some software. God, that's, boy, that's what I want to do, right? No. So the reason they do it is because I can't live another day with this problem that's driving me nuts. There must be an answer to it. If you tell me it's software, I'll sort of scrunch up my face, but I'll say, OK, well, what software, right? From home, OK? So the, the pragmatists fix things. The visionaries do things either for fun or for adventure or for competitive advantage. Pragmatists don't do that. Pragmatists say, if I want to have fun, I will wait till the weekend. Right? I'm at work. I just need to fix things. That's all I do. I just fix things. Over, I have a list of things. It's 20 long. I'm going to get to five. If you're in the top five, I want to talk to you. Otherwise, I don't want to talk to you. Okay? So you've got to make sure that the problem you fix in that niche is a top five, if actually probably a top three problem. Okay? And then you have to solve it. Not just so you ship a product that really helps. No, that, that doesn't cut it. You have to solve it end to end. You say, well, wait a minute. End to end means that they have to get an RFID reader, or they have to get, you know, they have to get a, you know, a, a support contract from HP or whatever. Okay, so literally, you, it's not literally you that has to solve it. It is, there must be an end-to-end -end solution that you personally will warrant works, which means you have to orchestrate that. You have to make sure that the HP support contract fits the RFID readers, which fits the whatever you've got thing. Right? You've got to make sure, you've got to test it. In other words, instead of just testing the product, you have to test the whole product only in that niche, only for that application. Everywhere else, you're just a product. They're buying your product. It's their responsibility to get returns. But in the niche, it's your responsibility that they get returns. Because you know what happens? If they don't, they don't, they don't send back the product. And they don't, they don't stiff you usually. They usually pay their bill. But they'll tell their friend, yeah, I tried it. No, it, it doesn't actually work. Not really. I mean, it sort of works, but it doesn't really work. And to a pragmatist, that is death. That is, I will never touch that product ever again. 
So you must have success, create successful experiences. That's what the whole product's about, which means you have to have partners and allies as few as possible, because partners and allies are inherently unreliable, and they need to make money. And so that means you've got to give them a big, you know, some, they've got to make a piece of the pie. In fact, it's initially, it's more important that they make money than you make money. Because if they make money, they'll stay in the game. And if they stay in the game, the whole product will work. And eventually, you'll make the money. Okay? Partners and allies. And then these things are sold directly. Now, they may be directly over the web these days, as opposed to, or directly over some sales 2.0 motion, or maybe directly telesales, or maybe directly I show up and I, I meet with you. Okay? But they're sold directly. Because you, you, it requires specialized knowledge of a niche problem. And, you, and the way you sell is you start with the problem not with your product. We have a rule at the sales call, the first sales call, put your hands behind your back and turn off your computer. Okay? No PowerPoint allowed in a first sales call. Okay? You must listen, you must diagnose, and you must ask great questions. And what sells the customer is they go, God, you're asking all the right questions. How do you know this? And the answer is, because we do this every day, right? Okay, good, okay, so, so great. So I, I can trust you, right? And you have references, yes, okay? Direct sales. Pricing, value-based. Nobody in this room can afford anything but value-based pricing. Okay? The problem is, once a category becomes good enough, value-based becomes competition-based. Once there's enough good enough choices in a market, the reference price is no longer set by the market leader. It's now set by the commodity alternative. And so markets at some point, at the beginning of a market, they're priced from the leader down. So you either get the leader or you get some discounted version, right? You either get the iPod or some Zoom for like 75% off, right? Whatever it is, okay? okay? But at some point, it actually gets priced up from the commodity choice, like a laptop, right? It's getting priced up from Acer or up from or Net, Netbook or whatever the heck it is, right? So you say, you know what? I mean, yes, I'll pay a premium, but I'm pricing up. We, nobody in this room can afford to be in that situation unless you have a really unique price up. And normally, th that, that, th there cannot be a commodity alternative to have that. So how do you avoid commodity competition? You, stay, you work on problems that do not lend themselves to horizontalized offers. Okay? Competition is horizontalized offers, and then you're different because of your niche market focus. Not outside your niche. Outside your niche, it's mano a mano against the horizontals, and you win some and you lose some, and you discount. But inside the niche, you don't. Okay? And then if you win that niche, and you get to 10 or 20 or 30 or $40 million, you know, God bless, good life. Vacation homes are in, you know, this is good. You know, but if you want to go further, or if you get acquired by a company who wants to go further, you'll go into additional niche markets. Okay? You'll have enough resources to do that. So creating definitive def uh, uh, separation, what does it take? The first thing, and probably the hardest thing, is pick your core. Unite around core and be just laser focused on what that is. Okay? And, 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 and not just you, because anybody can do it in their head. Do it socially and socialize it across your company so that everybody is on that page or they're not in the company. I mean, at some point, this can become that serious. Okay? Drive offer and program investments beyond reason. If you're making a reasonable investment, it's not enough. Because you know what? Your competitor can also make a reasonable investment. What they cannot do is make an unreasonable investment. Okay? So go way too far. And furthermore, take every other part of your company and do what we call tilt toward core. 
which is every other function in your company, try to somehow just redesign it like five degrees to sort of tilt toward whatever. In your case, if it's solution core, make sure that, you know, if I, if I was at Autodesk, I'd make sure that everybody in the company knows something about the architectural industry, even if they're in finance, even if they're in HR, okay? Just do the, go the extra mile just to, 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 to tilt toward core, and then be absolutely ruthless with context, okay? If it ain't core, then I want to, I want to optimize it, okay? Now, if it's mission critical, I got to be careful. I can't just, like, you know, decimate it. But if it's not core, I want at the margin to take resources out of that function every single year or month, quarter, whatever it is. Okay? Now that means I may try to transfer the task to a partner. I might try to transfer it into software. I might try to transfer it to the customer base. I might try to design the task out. But I got to do something. I can't just let it sit there and accumulate resource requirements. So just to close on this, and we'll have a few minutes maybe for questions. Um, Understanding innovation, I just, I wanted to install this model of return on innovation, this issue of differentiation, neutralization, optimization, pick one, and this whole issue of core versus context, because nimbleness and agility is your number one competitive advantage in a firm your size. If you waste that nimbleness and agility on anything that's not core, it's just, it's so expensive and it, 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 it defeats your, it undermines your number one competitive advantage. And then achieving competitive separation. So the value disciplines kind of give you that zone and you know, which buyer types are we going against, you know, performance versus relationship or whatever. And then I think for most of us in this room, solution innovation is the default strategy. Certainly for B2B companies, um, uh, it, 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 it has historically uh, been so, okay? So with that, first of all, I want to say thank you very much. I think you enjoy having you guys uh, listening, great. Um, I've, got, I've got a red clock here that says 500, counting down. I'd love to take a couple of questions or three questions or whatever is possible before we go to break. Yes, back there, just shout it out. Okay. Right. And, and this, this is, this is, um, this can happen to anybody. We call it. The, the business model that you were in we call picking up dimes in front of a steamroller. Um, it, it's free money until the steamroller just gets it. So the, the, you got to stay ahead of the steamroller. You, you have to. Now the good news is that these companies signal it. They uh, signal it. And, and, uh, and again, large, the larger the company, the less likely they can actually make a niche response to anything. Okay? But yeah, you got to be careful. Other questions? Somebody from over here. This isn't just the only intelligent side of the audience. Come on, there must be. Somebody's crap detector went off. Yes, back there, right there. Yeah, okay, fair enough. So, so like uh, this chasm thing or tornado thing, or like how, how do you know what, 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 what's going on? So it is growth rate uh, for, for, most, for that middle part. Sub 10%, probably even 8% below. That's what characterizes the big middle, the industrial model. Anything over about 10, 12, 15%, that's, that's in that growth period. But, but for the tough part for us is that technology adoption life cycle. And, and the issue is, is there any, the, the, the thing we look for for crossing the chasm is, is there any market 
I don't care how small the niche is, where this category of product that we make is a standard purchase that everybody makes? And if so, is, is there, is there a, a leader that's emerged in that niche market? And you'd like that to be you. Until that has happened, those two conditions have happened, the purchase is, and you'll know, by the way, as a vendor, because they, all of a sudden you'll start getting incoming marketing calls, whereas before you were only getting responses to outgoing marketing calls. All of a sudden, people start calling you because they say, I understand I'm supposed to get this thing, right? And so that's how you know that. The tornado thing is it, what starts happening there is all of a sudden uh, a, a, a product comes into the market that it gets identified as a killer app. And for whatever reason, it just takes off. It is the one at the right time in the right place. And all of a sudden, you know, Facebook has 300 million users, right? Now, Facebook still hasn't crossed the monetization chasm. Okay, but it has definitely crossed an adoption. It's been through an adoption tornado uh, going forward. Maybe, maybe one more question. If there's, if there's one, I'm going to turn the, turn the podium back over. Uh, okay, go ahead. Yes, please. Okay, so the, what do you do about, about you know, you want you got an end-to-end solution, but you're at 1.0. So the, the, I still believe in the philosophy that we championed in the 90s, go ugly early, right? You want to get into the market quickly, so what you do is you get into the market with a project, not a product, okay? So, so get a customer as soon as possible. Now would not be too soon, but if it's now, it's like you're going to help us co-design this product together, and, and that's what's cool about B2B software is that you can frequently find, find that. And then, and then as it evolves from project to solution, you're trying to design out as much of the service component and go from custom to customize, or and maybe eventually to configure. That's sort of the, the, the place you go. But people will pay a lot of money for a project. So if you're a small enough company, you can actually make that business model work for you, you know, uh, uh, going forward. As opposed to putting out a bare naked product that is actually wearing a hospital gown. And so as long as it's standing this way, we're okay. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Business of Software podcast. For more information, go to businessofsoftware.org.